It's Friday night. We are live for another episode of Abe Thompson and Other Disappointments. Um, I'm super excited about my guest this week. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, all things Brexit and the dilution of respect uh, in experts on the political landscape and scientific landscape. Um, uh, She's written for The Independent and The Byline Times. Uh, please welcome academic Dr. Maria Norris. Woo! Hello. Welcome. It's only you and my parents that call me by my title, so I like that. Oh, right. Well, that's good. That's <laughs> good. Um, how's it going? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I'm happy that it is Friday. It is, yeah. It's. Uh, has it been a tough week? Good week for you? It's. It's been a tr- tricky week. Um, I came back from holiday on Monday and, um, and uh, you know, I have a toddler, so we went to Butlins on a toddler weekend. Sounds really, so, um, yeah. Did, did you manage to leave your worries and stresses behind with your toddler no. at Butlins? <laughs> no, my husband and I, I mean, he got to a point where we went to see the PJ Masks show twice oh, in a row because she loved it so much. So it was great for her. She had a wonderful time. But it is not what I would say a relaxing holiday. <laughs> no, no. My brother described it once as uh, he said a holiday with children for a, a parent. Like it's it, it is really no holiday at all. <laughs> um, no, we needed time. We took both of us took Tuesday off so we could recover. Yeah. From it before we went back to work. Yeah. I sometimes like I, I read an article actually in The Telegraph a while back where they said um, uh, it, like this guy was reviewing a holiday place for parents and like for you know people's young families right and uh he said that he had given up on the idea of like he basically refused like outlawed holidays in his family because he found it so stressful um and he was like it's just a waste of money <laughs> like he was so grumpy about it um yeah but i kind of i have some empathy with it it's sort of you know if, like the idea of spending let's say i spent three grand on taking my my family away on holiday i kind of know it would be very stressful for me with like I don't know how how young your toddler is, but my, like I've got a five year old and an eleven month old, and just the flight alone, I think I'd want to kill myself. <laughs> yeah, my daughter is four; she's nearly four, and and look, we, my husband and I, didn't go into it thinking it would be like a grand relaxing holiday. It was for her, yeah. But also, when you're stuck in the reality of doing something for a toddler on a toddler weekend. Every day, all day, it just gets to a point where you're just like, we had all these plans that after she went to sleep, we would play board games together in the hotel room, watch movies. Yeah. But every time she fell asleep at nine o'clock, both of us collapsed and fell asleep as well. We were so exhausted. Yeah. Have you seen that film? Um, it's oh, I'm never going to remember the name of it now, but it's a Seth Rogen, like Bad Neighbours, I think it's called. Where? Yes, I love Bad Neighbours. Right. It's my favourite film. You know that scene where, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously like desperate for a night out to just be a couple and go out and enjoy and then the, the second that they do actually get that night out they both just collapse onto a bed and pass out yeah it's says when they were going to a rave and they get all the things ready to go but then they fall asleep on the floor and end up not going anywhere yeah it's like i can relate so much to that <laughs> i get that entirely um so so yeah thanks very much for for joining me and and uh, listeners and and viewers and stuff tonight um i thought you'd be a really interesting guest to get on um you you have an expertise in uh in an area that's obviously very current within politics um and uh, and as i mentioned in the intro um it's sort of my feel and i suspect the feel of a lot of people on the left of the center of the british political landscape that there's there's a real frustration and a sadness in the dilution of respect that we afford to ex- experts 
Um, so this is most famously, I suppose, evidenced by um, Michael Gove sat on the breakfast sofa saying, you know, I think people have had enough of experts. And, and that's the sort of lazy go to example of that whole mentality. But it's something that we see across the board. You know, people don't have an awful lot of respect for, let's say, journalists, for politicians, uh, for bankers. Um, and and in, like now more recently in the pandemic uh, for scientists, you know, people who could study or could have studied for you know, five, six, seven, ten years to, to develop an expertise and to know really what they're talking about and then to now find themselves in a political era where people are like, yeah, well, you know, I don't care what you say because I watched this YouTube video that said <laughs> that actually the mask is going to kill me. You know, like it's it's it must be a weird time. Is it like how how does that make you feel? It must be incredibly frustrating. Oh, it is, but it's also um, fascinating because it's not new. So that is one of the uh, signs of uh, one of the characteristics of living in a fascist um, reality. Mm. So the way that I approach through my work, um, fascism, is I don't look at it as a historical event, you know, something that happened in the 30s and 40s and it's behind us. Mm. Fascism is a political, it's a type of politics, and um, it's a type of politics that is evident everywhere where we look today. And one of, um, there is this... Um, a scholar, he's a philosopher, he's a professor of philosophy at the University of Yale, if I'm not mistaken, in the US. Mm -hmm. His name is Jason Stanley, and he wrote a book called How Fascism Works. Mm. And in it, he uh, outlines the categories, you know, the key characteristics of fascism. And one of them is promoting a state of unreality by disregard of expertise. And he makes the point that this is not new. This is not something that's happening just now with Donald Trump and Brexit, that it happened in the 30s and 40s with Mussolini and with Hitler. And it's one of the key characteristics of the politics of fascism. Right. And so it is not surprising at all that we see this happening because it's part of the politics that those in power are playing. When you disregard expertise mm. and experts, you create a state where everything you believe could be real and I mean is wouldn't that be amazing if everything we believed in was real but what that means when you disregard experts and expertise you create a sense of unreality which allows for this kind of conspiracy theories mm. to just come in and take over and those in power rely on the state of unreality and confusion because then they are able to put forward the most ridiculous policies mm. that harm a lot of people and enrich themselves and they are not questioned on it do you think, because they've engendered a situation. Do you think it's as malicious and um, uh, sort of Machiavellian as that? Or do you think it's... Because the, the, the temptation is to look at people like Donald Trump and or Boris Johnson and go, oh, what a buffoon, what an uneducated or intellectually uh, basic human being that is. But he, he doesn't understand what he's doing and what he's messing with. Um, but But when we talk about fascism and we, we talk about sort of box ticking exercises within fascism uh, and rolling that out across the US or across the UK, um, it sounds as though there is, you know, real malice and coordination and manipulation going on behind the scenes. But like, wh where do you sit on that? Do you think it's that they're just idiots playing with fire? Or do you think that they're actually coordinating this to create a fascist state? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I don't think these are mutually exclusive um, situations. Mm. It's very clear that, for example, Donald Trump is an idiot and a buffoon. Similarly with Boris Johnson, he is in many ways the British Trump. But their buffoonery and idiocy is calculated mm. in many ways. 
But um, one thing that I always like to tell people is that um, when we when we talk about when I talk about fascism or when I talk about how um, you know the government is when you talk about COVID is acting you know um, what's the expression that I use um, incompetence by default you know they are they are by design incompetence by design that although all this appearance of incom- the appearance of incompetence and doing things wrong making all these crazy mistakes all of this is by design i don't mean that there is a cabal of people behind the scenes you know in the tory government or even the tory government themselves not behind the scenes so getting behind you know a closed door and going "Ooh, what Mm. can we do to push forward our fascist agenda it's um it's it's not machiavellian in that respect in that i don't believe their project is to have an openly fascist state state but whatever it is that their end goal is will pass through fascist politics and you will create this kind of situation that we're in. So what I what I tell people is that Evo is very, very unlikely to take the form of, you know, a Netflix villain or something like it. Right. That Evo is a series of policies and a series of choices and a system that enables those choices to happen and to take place. And I think that's what we're currently embedded in at the moment is that perhaps we do have um, some key figures that are orchestrating what's happening Mm -hmm. but they are not operating in a vacuum they are only able to be as successful as they are because the system is in place to enable that kind of choice and that kind of behavior so it's um it's not so much um, a machiavellian leader that is making these decisions but a system that is enabling this Mm. kind of um, machiavellian thing to happen do you think there's an argument there to have something more closely resembling uh, a written constitution because my understanding and remember i'm not a politics grad or, or a journalist so uh what the fuck do i know but my understanding of it <laughs> is is that in the absence of a written constitution much of british politics uh, operates on a sort of uh, an honor basis you know you would never expect mm. that a, a british prime minister would behave in this way or that way or outright lie or refuse to correct the record um and so the machinations uh uh, to deal with somebody that has no morals um, are are not there. So do you think, it, are we sort of edging more closely in a utopian scenario to opening up a conversation about saying, well, look, you know, we've, we've had a, a close call here with people like Boris Johnson and what it's shown us is that if a psychopath, you know, a real Machiavellian mastermind were to rise up to number 10 at some stage, uh, we would be in real serious problems. We wouldn't be able to handle them. Do you think, could you see a written constitution kind of conversation happening? I don't think a written constitution is foolproof. I mean, the U.S. has a written constitution and they got Donald Trump. Mm. It, um, it, if I'm not mistaken, Brazil, where I'm from, also has a written constitution. And we have a quasi-fascist um, president in power right now, Jair Bolsonaro. So um, it's a constitution, a written constitution will not save us, mm. if you know what I mean. Um, I think the checks and balances that are needed to happen, you know, to, to protect us yeah. from um, a state, from from presidents, presidents, um, prime ministers having that much power and taking the country in a direction that is more authoritarian. They do exist already. It's whether or not these checks and balances are working as appropriate. And right. I don't think they are. And you see in the UK, um, the British government, the current British government, and I talked about this in one of the episodes of my podcast, um, Enemies of the People, about what happens, I think it's episode two, what happens when the government is attacking the rule of law, 
Mm. Or he takes the rule of law as an irritant, which this government very much does take the rule of law as an irritation. And um, and Professor Konogiti, who was my guest on that podcast, was talking about how you need the rule of law to keep the government in check. But while the government, when the government has the power to attack the rule of law, mm. that's when we see the difficulties. And one of the greatest difficulties that we have in the UK, which I don't think would be solved with the written constitution, is that there is very little separation of powers. Mm. We have the executive which is the government, is basically the legislative. They, the, they don't have the checks and balances where a different country that has a different system like the U.S., for example, has a, a Senate and a Congress that are much more divorced from the executive than we have here. Mm. So that is a big issue as well. Yeah. So I don't think the Constitution would solve any problems that we have. I think it's, um, it's a matter of making sure that the institutions that we already have in place are there acting as you're supposed to and we see clearly that they're not i mean just recently with the reshuffle the the news that dominic rab will be the justice secretary but also the deputy prime minister yeah well at the justice secretary one of their roles is to check the powers of the prime minister and the deputy prime minister so mm. he's going to be investigating himself or checking on his own powers so Clearly, there's a, something that's going on there, which goes beyond whether or not we have a written constitution. Yeah. And I suppose this sort of goes back to your your point earlier about kind of in, incompetence by default, was it that you said? Yeah. Um, by design. Yeah. it's So here you've got a prime minister who doesn't want to piss off his now ex-foreign secretary. And so he gives him a sort of largely ceremonial half role of being the deputy PM. Um, which, on the face of it, for somebody as short-termist and... and uh, I'm trying to think of a nice adjective here. Uh, uh, somebody as short term as, as Boris Johnson, um, that would appear to solve that problem for that week. I don't want to upset Rob. Uh, I do need to have a bit of a reshuffle. So I'll give him blah, blah, blah. Now I win. Now I've, I've got myself out of hot water. But in, in doing that, he's now again, like muddying the waters. Not, he's probably not breaking a rule. I don't know if there's he's ever, not. yeah, but it's still, it doesn't look like good governance, does it? When you've got the prime minister kind of awkwardly shoehorning people into different roles and not really like caring much about it. Yeah, I think the thing with, with uh, Boris Johnson is that he's the prime minister of the Tory backbenchers. He just follows the Tory party with its whims. And to be honest, David Cameron did the same thing. That's why we are where we are today with Brexit. You know, Brexit was an internal mm. civil war of the Tory party that got out of hand and we all have to suffer the consequences for it. But I think also one thing with Boris Johnson is that he has this desperate need to be liked mm. and to be liked by the Tory party in particular and the news media and all of these things. And he, uh, that's what ha how he presents himself as just like buffoon because it's that's what I mean when I talk about incompetence by design mm. is that it's much easier to dismiss somebody for being an idiot than to say that they are evil. You'd much rather be classified as an idiot than an evil person. So that is the line that he follows. So we see all these things happening that Boris Johnson is doing with the reshuffle and with, with Brexit and with COVID. And you're like, oh my God, isn't he stupid? Mm. And is he? Or is he presenting himself as stupid because it's better than presenting yourself as 
evil and not caring. Yeah, it's the sort of equivalent of being a naughty schoolboy and you get all of your sums wrong or something and then you try to act like you're in on the joke, like, oh, you know, I'm, yeah. oh, I'm such an idiot. Like, Because then at least you've got the social collateral of, like, yes, I know I'm an idiot, you know? It's like the political yeah. equivalent of that. It is. It's, it's, it's forgiving, isn't it? It's um, You can forgive an idiot much more than you can forgive somebody for deliberately doing something that will harm somebody yeah so it is it that part is very calculated yeah that was always the argument with uh with bush and blair like people wrote george w bush off as like oh he's just an idiot he's a cowboy he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing uh but blair were actually angry with because he appears to know what he's doing so what is he playing at kind of thing yeah and you also see that these politicians are very charismatic like you know love or hate boris johnson he's a charismatic prime minister he's a charismatic figure he wouldn't be where he is today if it wasn't for that mm. you know for all the times he appeared on have i got news for you or in the media or, or panel shows etc he has built on his charisma and relied on his charisma to a, a large extent which is something that um the Labour Party is sorely lacking. We don't have that many charismatic politicians in the Labour Party. And unfortunately, charisma counts for a lot when it comes to politics. Yeah, it's rightly or wrongly, it is still largely a personality contest. And even mm. when it's not, when it's when it does start to veer into a discussion on policy, if one party distinctly lacks any uh, any real policy for people to get excited about or, or they lack vision or ideas then they go for the like the personal and it becomes a personality contest again it does but that's also the nature of politics isn't it um a lot of people dismiss it as oh it's a personality contest what's the point but that's what politics has always been that's part of choosing a leader is choosing somebody that you are attracted to in some regards they have to have certain qualities of leadership and some of that is charisma and personability and things like that and um but what we need is charisma with substance and charisma with progressive social values mm. not charisma with fascist politics because uh, we've seen in the past where that leads mm. and when we talk about when i talk about looking at fascism as a type of politics and not a historical event it's because i don't want us to believe that oh it will never happen again it will never get to hitler or mussolini again and it because it doesn't have to look exactly like it did in the past for it to be a fascist mm. type of politics it's kind of it needs to... i was just Go going on. to say it's, it's quite paradoxical isn't it that you get all of these flag waving tories who love to pipe up about world war ii at any given opportunity uh and there's a real source of pride there and rightly so in a lot of cases but to to fetishize world war ii and to constantly refer back to it in in like whatever conversation like we're talking about the weather and they're like oh it wasn't like this in the blitz um but uh to 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 use it as this sort of um this pivot for every conversation and yet then if if you really peeled the onion of it if you said like well what is it about world war ii that that you're really proud of oh well we we fought the nazis what what was it about the nazis that you didn't like well they were you know they were fascist and uh you know they did this this and that. and then if you took those same like the list and you said what what the fuck is it that you think that the tory party are doing at the like so much of that there is an overlap and it, it, like i know how that sounds when i say those words it sounds hysterical and way over the top but it's i promise like whoever's listening and watching it is not like there is real parallels going on with how the conservative government are running britain in 2021 and how the nazi party began 
Now, I'm not saying for a second that we're going to end up in a, you know, in a situation where we're murdering six million people. But um, it like it should be at least raising eyebrows. It should be doing more to people who traditionally support the Conservative Party. It should be making them go, oh, hang on a second. Not not really down with it. I like waving my flag. I'm all against fascism. So why the fuck am I just sitting back doing nothing while the people that I put in power are doing X, Y and Z, you know? Yeah, and I think it's it's such an important point. And um, going back to the book by Jason Stanley that I talked about, you know, how fascism works, we're actually going to cover that particular book in the first um, anti-fascism book club that I'm running yeah. with um, with my podcast. You can check that out. And you can also enter a giveaway to win a copy, a free copy of How Fascism Works. But um, the uh, the key thing in all of this is that we have a tendency and correctly to think about um in many ways it's correct to think about what happened in the 1940s and 1930s as something that was extreme Mm. and it is something that was extreme um i'm not diminishing that in any way but because it was so extreme it makes any kind of comparisons that we make nowadays to the situation it almost seems that you lose it Mm. that you lose the argument because if you make the point that you made what Jason Stanley makes in his book, How Fascism Work, and Otto English makes in his book, um, what's his book called, Fake History. And I also interviewed um, Otto English for my podcast episode four, um, where he particularly talks about World War II and how the UK has fetishized World War II to quite a detrimental um, effect. If you make these comparisons, people think, oh, you mean Boris Johnson is going to kill all the Jews or create concentration camps and things like that. And it's like, no, that happened, and it was extreme. But it it was a ena- that that extreme was enabled by a type of politics that is still present in this day, mm. that is still happening in this day. And we need to be aware that it it doesn't have to be the horror doesn't have to be as extreme as it was in the 1940s and 30s for it to still be horrific. State violence doesn't have to take the shape of concentration camps for it to be state violence that attacks individuals and that harms individuals. Harm happens in different levels. And I think we need to be aware of, um, of the steps that are being taken mm. that are extremely similar to what happened in the 1930s and 40s. I mean, we talk about how we don't have concentration camps in the UK. Yes, we don't, but we do have immigration detention centers mm. where human rights breaches happen on an everyday basis and people are imprisoned for indefinite amounts, mm. for committing no crimes, women and children. And we don't really talk about it. It's not really in the news, but it happens. It exists. And I'm not saying it's the same as concentration camps at all, but it happens because we are embedded in this type of fascist politics that sees the other or those that we have framed as the other Mm. as being less than us and less worthy of protection and less worthy of having human rights than us. So the parallels are there and it serves nobody to shoot down the discussion by saying, well, at least we're not putting people in concentration camps and killing them because it doesn't have to be that extreme for it to be for the violence to exist. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I before I say this, I accept that being an academic and a writer you will be way more diplomatic than a podcast host slash comedian would be uh, about this but do you ever sort of think the real problem here is that most people are fucking stupid right and they like to be just told a very simple story and that simple story in this context is uh the germans were bad and we were good and the germans did horrible things to the jews and then we beat them and then that's it the end like there's no broader context around uh, well, actually, one of the reasons why uh, Jews were, were treated so terribly 
in like like we're sort of raised in Britain to think, oh well, if I was if I was in Germany in like 1941, I would have just been nice to Jews because I'm British and I, I'm not evil like all of the Germans. Like there's there's no sort of appreciation of the context that if if you were nice to Jews in that period, you would then be carted off. You would be dobbed in by, you know, your neighbour or somebody that you did business with. If you were seen to like shake their hand, like so there's all this sort of context of like, well, this is how it got so bad um, that people don't, don't remember or they're not educated or um and and most people like i say they just want that simple goodies versus the baddies story um and so then it makes it easy for them i guess um that that when we're talking about detention centers or we're talking about uh, a checkbox list of uh fascist attributes for governments um then it's it's too complex a conversation for them they would rather just you know punch out and go and watch love island I mean, don't we all? Um, There are three points I want to make on that. The first one is that I think it's so fascinating how the narrative of World War Two is that um, that we don't talk about how the British establishment at the time in the 1930s and 40s was also deeply anti-Semitic. And we don't we don't talk about it because it doesn't fit with the narrative that we have of the heroes that we were during the second world war when it comes to people being fucking stupid i say that a lot myself you know when i get stressed out especially when i think about things like brexit but honestly no i don't think that's the case i don't think people are stupid i think people have been beaten down by a system that exhausts them and makes life difficult yeah to the point that you seek easy answers and easy answers are are easy they help you know it's not our problem it's immigrants coming here um, stealing our jobs. It's um, it's not anything that I did wrong or any choice that I made. It's the EU. It's much easier to make those um, yeah. options when you have been ground down. Yeah, you're right, and and that the the othering of of institutions or people that again is is a simple story that people will gobble up. It's so much easier for them to think there's a brown family down the road that got a free house and I've got to pay for it. And now I'm enraged. That is a, a base level, simple story for them to consume. That is so much easier for them to understand than the, the, the complex nature of tax avoidance and why their public services have slowly been drained of funds. Like I, I try to explain this to people in TikTok comment sections because obviously I hate myself and I want to punish myself in some way. But like it does, it, it always seems so simple to me that like if you have, say, 30 million people and a percentage of them work and they pay tax through NI and income tax, then if the population goes up to 35 million or 40 million, then the number of people working would increase. And so then the public services should fatten out in line with the population growth. So when people say shit like, oh, um, are you going to welcome another 5,000 immigrants like across the channel there? I'm like, I don't give a fuck because if a percentage of them work and the population grows again, it should like round itself out. It, they, they should be self-supporting to a, a large extent, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, just one thing, if you see like me moving my arms or something like it, your viewers, sure. I'm near over the divergent, so it's easier for me to concentrate when my hands are busy. So as we're doing this, I'm knitting. Oh, right. Below, this, below the desk. It looks pretty good, <laughs> yeah. 
it's a it's a hidden skill but um what, yeah you're absolutely right and the thing that always gets me about immigration immigration is such a smokescreen because it's the way that it's particularly has been the narrative around immigration has been built in this country where everything is blamed on immigrants nothing is then blamed on the systematic no. lack of funding in this country so a great example of this is you see it all the time with housing you know there is a housing shortage in this country mm. and people struggle to pay rent and people struggle to find houses to buy for them and then families that are affordable and then people say oh it's because there are too many immigrants there are not enough houses mm. it's not because of the systematic failure to control private renting and build new properties mm. it's because of the immigrants similarly with the nhs with the policies that have been introduced over the years to start charging migrants to use the nhs it makes it seem like it's the NHS is underfunded because too many immigrants are using it rather than the NHS is underfunded because Tory governments and to a large extent the new Labour government as well over the years have chronically underfunded the NHS. Mm. It's much easier to blame it on immigrants mm. than to realise that where we are with the NHS and housing is a result of systemic policy choices mm. that were implemented by people we voted to power. Mm. Yeah. I, I want to sort of circle back a little bit and then talk about... Um, so you mentioned you're from Brazil and yeah. populism over there, populism in the UK, populism in the US. Um, we've sort of touched on othering and we've touched on um, uh, some of the like the checkboxes of fascism. Um, why do you think populism and fascism and nationalism these sort of quite ugly leanings of usually right-wing governments, I think. Uh, why do you think this style of politics has become popular again now, like over the last five years? What's what's changed now that's made them all, all the hype? Um, I think they've always been popular. I don't think there has ever been a point where they weren't. I mean, I think perhaps immediately the post-war, immediately the period immediately after the Second World War, perhaps yay you know like people really were confronted with fascism to a scale that they hadn't been confronted before so they voted more progressive governments in power i mean it's not a coincidence that it was after the second world war that we have the nhs mm. and that we have uh, the um the welfare system that we now have it was created directly as a result of a progressive labor government being voted into power straight mm. after the second world war but it didn't stay in power for long mm. and you have um, you have um, regressive politics taking place all the time. And in Brazil, for example, Brazil was under a military dictatorship from the 60s until, I believe, 1985 or 1981. And that's not that long ago. And yeah. Jair Bolsonaro, the president, was elected in 2000 and, God, I forget, 19, I believe. Um, and he... <laughs> spoke openly about how much he admired the military dictatorship, how the, the military dictatorship didn't kill enough people. He would have killed more, you know, and he was still elected. Yeah. So there is an even shorter space of time there than you have now, than you have here with the UK and the Second World War. The reason for it, I think there is many. There's many that can, um, lots of academics like myself and others spend a lot of time and effort trying to understand it and explain it. But for me, it all goes back to nationalism mm. and nationalism at its basis is the political doctrine that requires that the state and the nation be congruent. So what that means in normal language is that nationalism means that you have to have the nation and the state be the same, that um, government by foreign rule is a violation. 
And it is the political doctrine that really explains the world that we live in now. You know, the system of nation states that we have was created in the Treaty of Westphalia, responding to the needs of, of nationalism. So all of this is, is relatively new from the 1900s onwards. But what I mean by that is that um, this idea that the nation and the state, the people and the state have to be the same, mm. was never true, was never a reality, because the world has never been homogenous. But it was easier to maintain an illusion of homogeneity yeah. back when people had fewer rights and back when we didn't have the, the information revolution that we have now with the internet. The more we move to improving human rights and an understanding of human rights, which we have made huge strides towards, and the more we are embedded in a communication revolution where we're able to communicate and get news from everywhere in the world, the more and more this illusion of one people, one state gets shattered, you know, the illusion of borders. Mm. Borders are, are artificial. They're kept in place by a piece of paper, you know, your passport. And they are artificial. They are an illusion. But they are kept in place by all this apparatus. And the unreality and artificiality of this apparatus becomes more and more evident every day. So what I see, the way I see it, all of this is like the death throes of nationalism as a way of ordering the world. It didn't work back in the day. That's why we had lots of wars and lots of people didn't have rights. It doesn't work now, even less than it ever did. The illusion that there is a state mm. for one people, you know, the illusion of homogeneity. And what we're seeing now is, is it's death throes and this really fruitless fight to hold this idea in place, which no longer works, but which people are dying and committing violence and um, and the state is committing violence to maintain in place, which I find really depressing. But at times I also find it quite um, encouraging and hopeful because the system of nation states was created by individuals. It's not a natural law, you know, like gravity or things yeah, like yeah. that. It was It's a res result of human action. So it can be changed because of human action as well. We built it. We can unbuild it and make something better out of it. Do you... Do, are you quite sort of hopeful then that we'll end up in a in a utopian situation where there actually aren't borders and uh, or or even countries? Like, is that the sort of end goal you'd like to get to? Or people always ask me that, and they always look at me like I'm crazy, and I'm like, yeah, no, open borders because it reflects the reality of humanity. Humanity, humans have always moved. Yeah. We have never been stationary. We have always moved, and we're always going to continue to move. And trying to deny this natural impulse of movement is causing people so much damage. I think that the end game will be something like open borders, but I don't. Does that mean that it will be the end of the nation state? Is it possible to maintain the nation state while keeping open borders? We see this experiment with the European Union in the Schengen area where you do have open borders there, mm -hmm. and there are successes and failures when it comes to that. I don't know, but I don't know when it comes to me being hopeful or not. I mean, it depends on the day. Most time, no, I think we are all going down <laughs> the abyss. But um, I try not to be so, optim so, so optimistic, so pessimistic <laughs> because of the fact that this is all happening because of human action and human action can change it as well. And I see a lot of things that make me hopeful. But like I said, it is dependent on human action. And if yeah. we don't act, it won't happen. The the only thing I would I'd sort of challenge in that is so I I don't have any romantic uh, attachment to the idea of, of geographical borders and um, and I, as a I suppose one of my more left leaning uh, attributes is I sort of I don't really I don't 
I don't obsess with the flag or even with being British particularly. I don't like it's not my whole identity. I, like I'm I'm happy that I'm from the UK and I, I feel very fortunate that I I was born here and that I grew up here. Um, but it's not. I don't drape myself in a flag ever. I don't like you know. But I I I accept uh, and understand that there are huge like millions of people out there for whom their national identity is is a real core part of them and i i wonder if you did table this quite radical uh uh goal to them if you said i would like to open the borders and there's not going to be any such thing as countries anymore i think they would i mean you see how fiery people get about just leaving the eu like what like how what sort of gun would they run to grab or like cannons would they fire off if you said you're no longer british you just get rid of the fl that flag doesn't mean anything anymore like i'm cancelling it yeah i think we need to have a radical i think being a radical and having radical ideas is necessary but uh, and but that doesn't include the only radical solution being no borders and no countries anymore mm. why don't we think about or try to imagine a future where we do have countries but we don't have borders you still have Britain and you mm. still have British identity but you don't have a border system in place mm. and that's where I always get this this feeling and this question is British identity so mm. fragile that is threatened by the removal of an artificial mm. border mm. would it just disappear or would it evolve and there is the way that I think these people that cling on to the flag and nationalism so extremely they are unwittingly making the case that the national identity is fragile and can't withstand change mm. when it changes on an everyday basis and trying to keep it the same and keep it permanently, like permanently the same mm. is what is wrong. Because why can't we embrace a national identity or a type of belonging or a country mm. that doesn't exist on exclusionary borders? Is it possible to think, you know, part of thinking radically about what kind of future we want to build is having these discussions about what can it be possible? Because I don't think it would ever be possible, to be honest, to be, you know, to have the end of countries. Mm. But the end of borders doesn't mean the end of countries. The end of borders just means the end of the punitive border system that commits so much violence against people, especially the most disadvantaged. That's the end of the border system. Mm. It's not the end of countries. We need to, to try to be creative in imagining what the future can look like. Yeah, yeah. It it always strikes me as quite f hilariously contradictory that so your typical kind of conservative would be self-responsibility, think of, think for yourself, earn your own money. Um uh whereas on the left we tend to sort of think of things more as like, you know, the 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 local government or the government have a responsibility to look after, you know, let's fund institutions correctly. Um and yet with the flag it's like all of the really like batshit brexity right wingers love to rally like it's it's their opportunity to feel a part of something to be to have that community thing whereas then on the left like i get the feeling that people look at that like why that is that is weird to be <laughs> to be so obsessively um i don't know like to to need to be part of something and then in the blink of an eye you're like oh yeah but do you also want to be part of a society that looks after its vulnerable? No, no, no. Go, go fuck yourself. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not part of my British value, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I'm a socialist and, um, 
But again, I go back to this question of, is your national identity that fragile that it just hangs on the flag? That it that is not bigger than that, that doesn't involve, you know, when people talk about British values and mm. democracy and whatever the British values of the day are. It's like, what does that actually mean in practice? Mm-hmm. And can't we make them stronger and more robust by making them inclusive rather than making them exclusive? Yeah. Which they are at the moment. Yeah. Do you think... Um... So it, like we've, we've talked about populism and nationalism um, uh, and obviously Brexit is a big part of that uh, at the moment, at least. It feels like to me, like the culture wars and uh, division and tribalism uh, are here to stay. Like I can't see, I think in, in a world with social media where people live in the, these echo chambers uh, and you've got governments in power who stoke that fire constantly um, and, and benefit from it. Um, can you see a situation in the next sort of 5, 10, 15 years where things are not going to be this divided? Or where, where, like even will Brexit end? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the end of Brexit, wouldn't that be nice? Um, I, I Honest answer is I don't know. I'm notoriously crap at making predictions about um, the future when it comes to politics. I mean, I didn't think Brexit could happen in a million years. And then when Theresa May became prime minister, I thought she would last a couple of months at best. Mm. I never thought Boris would become prime minister. But yeah, here we are. So I'm notoriously bad at making these kinds of predictions. I essentially, I don't know what the future holds. I think it holds. I I don't think anyone knows. But also, I think there's too many things in flux, too many things happening. Mm. Um, And with the pandemic not being anywhere near over, plus climate change coming in and throwing things out of balance, I have no idea what's going to happen. What I do know is that the current media institution in the UK and political institution as a whole is deeply conservative and is basically built to maintain the power of the conservatives Mm. in, in, in politics. So I don't see, and I know this sounds very depressing, I don't see a future, a near future, you know, five years time, next election time, I don't see the Tories leaving power. They might lose their majority to some extent, but I do not see Labour gaining some any kind of significant majority or um, the Tories or the Lib Dems or the Greens or anything like that, because we need deep reform for that to happen. You know, we need proportional representation, for example, and there is very little appetite for that, because what would there be? Mm. Proportional representation would diminish Tory power and the Tories are in power. Yeah. Why would they do that? So... Um, so what I and that's it can be seen as very pessimistic and depressing, and in many ways it is. But I think that just really emphasizes the importance of grassroots movements mm. and doing individual things like bringing awareness to certain issues, having these kinds of discussions like in your show, and it's educating yourself and trying to stand up against any kind of, of, of intolerance and brutality that you see on an everyday basis because we cannot wait for it to happen at the institutional level and at mm. the political level because that's not going to happen anytime soon. We need to start working with what we can because we cannot depend on them to do it, to do the change that we require. Yeah. So it is, yeah, it's a bit depressing and pessimistic, mm. but also it's it's almost like a call to arms because if we don't do anything, then it's going to continue getting worse. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And uh, you, you mentioned proportional representation. Um, and th- there was a lot of talk uh, a month or two ago about what a progressive alliance might look like if, if Labour were willing to hold hands with the Lib Dems and Greens and so on. Um, and I think 
perhaps I'm uh, I'm in a similar boat to you with regard to my optimism for for anything really changing in a, in a meaningful way in the next sort of five or ten years. Uh, I think it will come down to uh, not necessarily like people as in like the the everyday guy on the street or anything, but I think it will be down to people like Femi, for example, or you know high profile social media people to get the word out to basically tactically vote which like i would rather we were voting and living in a political ecosystem where people weren't forced to tactically vote because essentially what you're doing is saying i will vote for somebody just to get this guy out like so you're not really aligning with their values and you know in 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 a political nirvana you'd vote for the person whose values reflect your own values right um so it's it I'd rather not have to do this, but if it's the choice of me tactically voting for, let's say, a Lib Dem to keep the local Tory out of my town, I'm happy to do that and take ownership and, and try to affect change on, like you say, like on a sort of grassroots level um, in lieu of uh, a Starmer opposition failing spectacularly to, um, uh, uh, to try to affect change at that level um, up there. Yes, I... I... I was having that same discussion with, with my husband the other day and with our friend, uh, our mutual friend, Davey, um, Davey Moo, mm -hmm. uh, on Twitter, writes an excellent blog called Politically Enraged. We were having this discussion about what do we do politics-wise, because there is a lot that's happening within labor that I'm personally against, you know, the issues, um, that their inability to actively stand up against um, transphobia, against um, Islamophobia in, in the, in, inside the party, and um, and all of these and the institutional racism, which is also present present within the Tory within the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. How can we vote for a party that doesn't fully share our values, mm -hmm. but at the same time, by not voting for that party, even though it doesn't fully share our values, we are enabling a party that is openly against those values and is attacking those values to stay in power. So we're really caught between two choices that are no choices at all, because I want to vote for something that closely aligns with my values. Mm. But if that vote would then mean that the Tories get to power or get to remain in power, then is that really the right choice? I don't know what anybody else will do. I mean, voting is a very personal opinion, but for me, it, regardless of all that is wrong with the opposition parties, my vote is always to keep the Tories out of power, whatever it takes, because they are causing damage on an unprecedented scale to this country and to individuals. However, I don't think that's the perfect option because mm. there's still so much that is wrong with the opposition opposition parties, Labour in particular. But I hold out hope that perhaps by again getting involved in the grassroots and and social media and things like that, the progressive sides of the Labour Party, which exist, mm. will gain more power and yeah. try to change things from within. But it's it's a really imperfect situation because the system is imperfect because we don't have a um, voting system, a system of representation that is truly representative. So we are caught having to make these very difficult decisions. And I don't blame anyone for not voting Labour, for voting Green or Lib Dems, even if they don't have a chance of getting there. You do what it is that you need to do. Mm. But it because we are all caught in this very very difficult situation. You're so much more diplomatic than I am. I'm <laughs> like I'm like. <laughs> You voted. You voted green, really. In where? Where do you live? Oh, right. Okay. What, did they ever have a chance? Right. Okay. And then you look at like the breakdown of of you know what what candidate got what, 
And if the Greens, the Lib Dems had all voted Labour, then they would have kept the Tory out. And like that situation was reflected in Dominic Raab's constituency. Like he only had a, a very slim majority there. And the left-leaning vote, and this is a point that, that uh, Femi makes a lot, is that um, uh, the majority of voters in the UK actually vote for left-leaning parties. It's just that, that those votes are always split down different factions. And I think one yeah. of the things that the Tories do really well uh, is they all rally behind the Tories. You know, if you talk to a right-winger... Um, and you say, oh, who did you vote for at the last election? There's a, a slim chance they might say the Brexit party or, you know, UKIP maybe before. But um, for the most part, even if they don't really like the Tories that much, they'll still vote Tory. They'll just fall in line and go like, yeah, well, fuck it, Boris, yeah. Um, whereas on the left, I think, you know, maybe I'm backpatting myself and, and you and, you know, people on the left a little bit much. But my sense is that when I talk to people on the left uh they apply way more critical thought to their voting process and the decisions that they make and and the policies that they're willing to get behind they say to themselves well yeah i i want to vote labor but you know the whole the anti-semitism thing <laughs> just uh, i don't know if that really or, or like now they'll say you know it would be I'd, I'd vote labor but i'm not sure of, i'm not clear on their stance on trans rights or you know so then they'll fall out of labor and then they'll look at the greens or lib debt and then so you end up with this this factionalization if that's even a word that i don't think exists in the same uh, to the same extent on the right and i think we're it doesn't at all yeah we're, we're and all i think that um it. that's the problem with having a conscience isn't <laughs> it is that um i think that's the problem with having principles it gets in the way of getting in power and it does and and it's it it does it's much easier to get to power to be in power and to maintain power by having fewer principles and the tory party and the tories do this extremely well they yeah. present a united front and they are a bunch of vipers that hate each other and would destroy each other in a heartbeat but they present themselves mm. as a united front which is something the left has never managed to do mm. so i get extremely frustrated with this as well and i i i am appearing diplomatic now perhaps because i'm zen because i've been knit, knitting <laughs> but i also get extremely frustrated with people who especially in 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 constituencies that are like paper thin yeah where that they vote for somebody that would enable the, the tories to win and you see that in the united states as well you know the people who voted for the green party or whatever in the united states that meant that donald trump got into power because mm. they divided the vote so they is like sometimes i want to yell damn your principles you know because by sticking to your principles you are letting much greater harm in yeah. so i i get that but i just think it's such a difficult situation that it's it's so difficult to have principles and live in the world that we live in because it doesn't reward having principles as no. it doesn't reward trying to help people and trying to hold government accountable but I don't think there is a clear solution or a clear answer to this. No, I suppose. I mean, people criticise Keir Starmer all day, uh, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't envy him having to do the job of Labour leader at this period in in time. I think maybe it was an easier role back in the fifties and sixties, and you know, all you had to do was basically take the the Labour unions line and be up you know root for the workers and and so like now we've we're in this era where there's a huge social justice movement but then there's also the historic traditional 
labour workers, there's the unions, then you've got to somehow try to get to appease the like floating voters, you know, like the sort of people that still read the Daily Mail, but they're a bit fed up with the talk. You know, you've got to try mm-hmm. to make yourself look business friendly. And uh, yeah, it's it to, to a large degree. I think that role is an impossible task and, and a thankless one. In many ways, um, I I can criticize Kiyostama forever. Um, I don't think he's doing a very good job at all as a Labour um, leader. However, what would I do in his position? Mm. I don't know, because I would like to think that I would be much more aggressive towards the Tories and um, and much more progressive and, and, you know, pushing progressive values and standing up for the factions of the Labour Party that are not progressive. Mm. I would like to think that I would do that. But it's a very difficult situation to be in. And honestly, I would love to see a Labour leader that is so much more openly progressive mm. in a way that is not divisive like Jeremy Corbyn was divisive. Mm. But for them to get to power, there are so many factions within the Labour Party that they would have to please. And how do they go about pleasing those different factions and not compromising their values? I don't know. Mm. Again, we're caught in this really difficult situation. But I also think that it's not my job to know because I'm not a politician. Yeah. It's um it's those that are involved in the political process of the Labour Party and other parties that have to have the answers to these questions and they don't currently have it. And all of this um reluctance that the Labour Party has to do something like the progressive coalition, I don't get it. Like why are you reluctant? That is yeah. that's so your ticket. The way forward. Yeah, yeah. I think I don't get it. I think somebody like Keir Starmer, in his position, uh, he has to be seen to be leading Labour to a Labour success uh, for for whatever reason. Uh, maybe it's to appease donors. Maybe it's his you know upper circle of of uh, like shadow cabinet people that that don't want to see somebody at the helm already talking about defeat. Might be something like that. But yeah, I agree. I think you are not in a situation where. Uh, or, or Labour are not in a situation where um, they're anywhere near to to some sort of Blair-esque victory majority. So let's talk realism. <laughs> let's let's have a yeah. a conversation that is rooted in reality about what your options are if you want to get into number ten. And those options really are proportional re- representation, progressive alliance, um, or quickly switch out a leader now. Because if there is an election in twenty twenty three, I think they're sort of mooting it. Um, uh then we, like now would like let, let's get Starmer out and then like my recommendation would be and I never know how people feel about this when I say this but I've always thought Emily Thornberry would be an amazing PM or, or certainly amazing leader of opposition when I think back to how she performed when it was her against Boris Johnson when he was a foreign sec and she was the shadow foreign sec and I think about her on like breakfast sofas and doing interviews and appearances on LBC and stuff and I don't want to make myself sound like too much of a stan here but uh she's funny charismatic um I think she'd make a wicked leader but um I I think that again we go back to that we go back to the question of charisma, right? Who mm. in the Labour Party is charismatic enough that also has the chops to, to, to act as a leader? Mm. Um, I think that the problem with successive Labour Party leaders since Tony Blair is that they haven't had the charisma factor, no. even though they might have had the policies in place, like Ed Miliband, for example, in many ways. Um, I think that, I mean, there are so many... 
I think Miliband's got, Labour MPs. Miliband's got more charismatic since he left that role. He has, hasn't it? Yeah. It's amazing how that how that's worked. But um, for me, Don Butler is an MP I hugely admire, mm-hmm. and I think he's very charismatic and very strong. And um, um, Zara Sultana, who's the, I think that's her last name, who's mm-hmm. the MP for Coventry, who I basically adore. I stand basically. I, yeah. I love her. And Clive Lewis as well. I think he's the MP for Nottinghamshire. I'm not entirely sure. But um, those are, are, are figures on the Labour left yeah. who are young MPs mm. who I think have a lot of potential. Whether or not they are electable to be Labour leaders is yeah. a different question. Whether or not they're electable as PMs, that's a different question. However, I do think that there are options that we should be considering when it comes to future leadership bids. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I've seen I've seen sort of um, like parliamentary speeches from all of them, except for Clive Lewis. I don't think I've seen anything of his um, for a while. I thought, what, what was that guy? Ch- Chuka Amuna. I thought he was going to yeah. go for it. And then I thought about it. Do you remember he, he just bowed out like last minute? And me and my yeah. friends were saying, what the fuck? Like, who has got <laughs> what on him? Because there's no way that you bow out like at the last, and, and it was such a flimsy excuse. Like, did he say something like, "I've just decided that, uh, you know, I don't want the media attention on my family" or like something like that? And I was thinking, but you must yeah. have fucking known that before you applied for the role, you idiot. Like, that's the thing that I think as well. Like, right, um, exactly as you said, it. I think that's a valid reason, mm. but at the same time, it's not new. You no. know, it's it was there from the start. So I don't know. There are so many of the inner machinations of the parties and the MPs that we have no access to and we can only sit here and guess at. But I also think that it's time for a different type of lead of labor leadership. How many labor leaders have been men? How many have been women? How mm. many have been people of color? And how unsuccessful have they been? I think it's time to have when I talk about radical change in representation, I think it's time to, to do that as well and to have a Labour leader that is representative of the country, mm. that is not no longer following this disgraceful line of um, of failed white male MPs that mm. become leaders of the Labour Party and then take us nowhere. We've had um, Labour um, deputy leaders who have been women or who have been people of colour but there's only so much that they can do from the position of deputy. If you really are a believer in representation, in diversity, in change, let them take the limelight and see what can happen. Because clearly the model of the last 10 years, the last 20 years, has not been working. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, well, let's hope that, I mean, I'm not wishing uh, uh, any any career troubles for Keir Starmer. But if he did decide to step aside, then uh, yeah, it would be nice to see something a little bit different give give other yeah. people a shot maybe a few fresh faces um and again in the spirit of the left not tearing itself apart you know sticking out to our principles kiosama has a very difficult job has a he's in a very difficult position and i support him as leader because he is the leader at the moment even though i don't think he's doing a good job of it i'm not going to spend my time um bringing him down because i don't think that's useful Right I just don't think he passes the beer test. Like you, you talked about charisma, and you know, <laughs> like per, we talked about personality contests side of things. I call it the beer test, and it's yet to have failed me. Now, I, I don't want to brag about my predictions to somebody who has, you know, clearly your polit- political predictions are something of a sensitivity <laughs> to you historically. <laughs> but I, I put money on Trump winning. I put money on the Brexit referendum. What I won both of those, uh, and. 
I predicted... What was the other one? There was a UK election. Well, I predicted Boris Johnson would get uh, the Prime Minister role um, because at every single one of these junctures, uh, the two people that, uh, that it was a choice between, the person that won was the person that not that I like best or that I would even like to go for a beer with, but the person that I envisage most people out there would enjoy sitting and having a beer and a bit of a chat with uh, is, is the person that ended up winning. I, I looked at like, I think that, sorry, carry on. I was going to say that links back to your first point that we talked about, which is this question of experts, right? And why do yeah. the public not like experts? We don't like having a, so, or the idea of having somebody in power yeah. who is so far removed from us, you know, yeah. and that's something that I think Barack Obama did really well. Barack Obama was an intellectual and he was an, an expert and an academic in many ways, but he also had the charisma. So he was able to bridge that. Yeah. And, and we need to have something like it. So you need to be able to have a discussion at um, at, a, at a higher level while also being able to have a beer and having a conversation with somebody. It's yeah. very difficult to be a politician and to be a successful politician at that. Yeah, I mean, this is. I think this is one of the reasons why I, I would like to see Thornbury considered for this stuff because I, I could imagine sitting and having like a... Um, I mean, I have imagined sitting and having a beer with Emily Thornbury. I don't want to get too obsessive about this, but uh, <laughs> uh, but no, like she seems like a laugh, and and she's a, I think she was a barrister before she went into politics. Um, uh, so and and we've seen her debate. Um, so for me, I feel like she would be a a, a really strong performer in that kind of role. Um, but I again, like I, I'm happy and excited to see new faces rise up. It's probably about time for. Uh, for a change and sort of switch out the old guard. I think with Keir Starmer, the problem that he has, and I said this to Supertansky when she was on, I was saying Keir Starmer is obviously a very intelligent guy and he's, you know, everyone talks about how forensic he is and he's got command of his brief and he's so well prepared and, and uh, PMQs with him against Boris Johnson is is quite entertaining to watch sometimes, but it's not ever delivered in a way that is charismatic, that makes you... I don't know, like there's something missing there. And I always imagined that he would make, he's the sort of person that you want as your right-hand man. He's he, he would, like, for him to write your speeches or for him to prep and brief you for PMQs, he's a good guy to have there. But then I would I would have thought somebody like Thornbury up front actually delivering it with the charisma, making the jokes, you know? Yes, and I think that's where my radical side comes out because I think that... Um, Yes, Keir Stammer is forensic, and um, and he's but he's also very cautious. And I think the time for caution is over. Yeah. You know, people are dying. People are dying every day from um, from COVID with um, you know because we don't have any any preventative mm. things at work anymore. We have removed all kinds of restrictions, so there is an untold amount of unnecessary deaths happening right now. People are dying in detention centers. People are dying in the, in the sea trying to get to Britain. Mm. These are all deliberate policy choices. So I think that um, for me, the time for caution and trying to appeal to the middle and appear not too radical for me in many ways, it's over because people are dying every day and you're not doing anything about it. You're not talking about it. You're not making this the central push of your campaign that the Tories are killing people because of the policies they are putting in place. Mm. So that's when I, when, you know, my diplomatic side goes away and I get all radical because when you think about the human cost Mm. of diplomacy and the human cost of of being cautious is 
numerous and it's going to continue to happen. So again, I'm back to not knowing what the solution is because whether or not this kind of radical politics would be successful in this country, I don't know if it would be. I don't think we've ever had a chance to see it. People will point to Jeremy Corbyn being progressive and radical and socialist and all of that. And he was, but in many respects, he was an awful politician Mm. and not being able to present these views to the public in a way that is compelling. And he was also under constant attack by the the right-wing media. But I also don't think he did it right. I mean, I, I, I always said it, that um, Jeremy Corbyn, for all that he had going on for him, he was still an old white man. And I find it very difficult to see old white men as radicals, as proposers of radical change, because they're too embedded in the system to imagine otherwise. Mm. And I... I supported him just like I support Keir Starmer, but I hold out hope from some kind of radical change because a radical change is needed. People are dying every day and not one or two in their dozens. People are dying in the hundreds, if not thousands. And I think that if there's ever been a time for radical change in our politics and for a radical, charismatic leader, progressive leader, then this is the time for it. Yeah. What will it take? Dr. Maria Norris, we've we've been chatting uh, for an hour now. Um, we'll have to we'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, if you want to hear more from uh, Maria, she hosts a, a podcast weekly. Is it? Yes, every Tuesday. Podcast called uh, Enemies of the People. Um, uh, go check it out. She's also on Twitter, Dr. Min- Maria Norris. Um, and I will be back uh, next week with another guest. I haven't found out or decided who that will be yet um just some other updates as well uh the podcast this this episode will be out on itunes and spotify tomorrow um i'm gonna start putting some stuff on patreon soon so if you um have a pound or two pounds that you want to uh, help support the podcast then check out the links in um in in this episode and episodes going forward um and yeah i'll be back next friday with another guest thank you so much for tuning in thanks again maria thanks for having me